I welcome you to the Holistic Health Show. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, your host. Before I introduce my guest today, I want to explain why discussion of women suffragettes is important to holistic health. I have always envisioned holistic health as encompassing physical, mental, and spiritual health, the environment, relationships, and political action, because all affect health. The work of women suffragettes and activists are a part of political action that focuses on change to benefit the health and activities of all people in a democratic society. My guest today, April Young Bennett, began studying the lives of suffragettes to inform her own activism. As communication director for Voices for Utah Children, she worked within national networks of advocates for change to state and federal policies affecting children and parents, such as pay equity, health care, education, and juvenile justice. She was a founding organizer and spokesperson for the activist group Ordained Women, which has been featured in respected news outlets such as the New York Times and the Washington Post. Ordained Women collaborates with the Women's Ordination Conference of Catholics, Ordained Women Now of Lutherans, Women on the Wall, the Jewish Women, the Parliament of World Religious Women's Task Force, and other networks of religious feminists. April produces and hosts the Religious Feminist Podcast, which provides a forum for feminists across a variety of faith communities and secular feminist organizations to learn about each other and work together toward common goals. She blogs about Mormon feminists at TheExponent.com, which averages 40,000 unique visitors per month. As April advocates for gender equality, she has noticed parallels between her modern challenges and those experienced by our wave of feminist forebears. When she marched with hundreds of women to a male-only religious meeting, the women were barred from entrance, but allowed to listen over the Internet. Much in the same way, Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were barred from the World Anti-Slavery Convention in 1840, but allowed to listen from the balcony. Beyond a bar and a curtain, on another occasion, she was among many women of her faith who demonstrated their desire for gender equality by wearing pants to church instead of traditional dresses. At least one male church member was so peeved that he threatened to shoot any woman who showed up at church in pants. April was minded of our suffragette foremothers who received a similar visceral reaction when they wore bloomers in the 1850s. Because April wanted to read something about this earlier era, one book, preferably, that was broad enough to impact the wisdom of activists from a variety of racial and socioeconomic backgrounds. She didn't find that book, so she read everything, memoirs, biographies, history books, archived letters and diaries, and even boring minute meetings. She asked suffragettes her questions, and they answered. Then she writes the book that she wanted to read back when she started this journey. Ask a suffragette stories and wisdom from America's first feminist. Learn more about April Young Bennett at https colon forward slash forward slash com. I welcome you to the Holistic Health Show, April, and I look forward to hearing about historical perspectives and useful lessons to current American activists. Now, first, as an activist, 
why would you write a history book? That is such a good question. When I first started doing activism, I didn't know much of anything about history other than what one learns in high school. And we don't talk a lot about women in high school, in high school history classes, unfortunately. So I didn't know much about the women's movement and what had happened. And I got involved in activism, and I worked with a very passionate group of folks. We had lots of ideas. Lots of them were good ideas. And our way of figuring out what to do was to try everything. So we would be brainstorming. We used Facebook to brainstorm with each other. And we would talk to each other basically 24-7 on Facebook, brainstorming ideas, throwing things out there, trying everything. And after a while, I came to realize that a lot of the things that we were trying and doing with all of our frantic brainstorming were things that people had already tried before. And that what we were doing now wasn't so different from what activists have been doing all along. And I began to study the history more. And I found that a lot of the things that were happening to us as activists, for example, we had religious leaders that were speaking out against us and punishing people in their in their congregations because they were participating in our feminist movement. Those things that had happened to other people before, like Angelina and Sarah Grimke or Lucy Stone. And we weren't learning much from their lessons because we didn't know what had happened to them. And so I started studying more about what other feminists had already been through so I could find out what they had all what problems they had already solved and not have to keep on recreating the will. And why did you choose the suffragettes that you featured in the book? When I started looking into this, I wanted to find a, a lot of different perspectives. And so I looked for people who were different from each other. So one thing that these people all have in common is they all value equality, and they were all passionate enough to work towards it as activists. But other than that, they had a lot of differences. They were racially different from each other. They came from different socioeconomic statuses. They came from different parts of the country. Some came from other countries. Several of them were immigrants to the United States. And so they had very different perspectives on life. And I wanted that. I wanted to see lots of different ways of looking at the problem and addressing the problem. So I could find something that would work for me and work for other people who maybe would approach life differently than I would. Mm -hmm. And from a historical perspective, how did the American women's rights movement begin? It started largely because women were already interested in other movements. Particularly, they wanted to abolish slavery, and they wanted to abolish drinking. At the time, it was really a women's issue because there weren't a lot of laws to protect women whose fathers or husbands were drunks or alcoholics, and they saw this as a big women's issue, a big problem. And so they wanted to become involved in abolishing slavery and ending alcoholism, and these were things that were very important to them. Mm-hmm. But when they tried to become involved, they found that they were blocked by men who were saying, wait, that's not your place. Women belong in the home. What are you doing going out and giving speeches and lobbying the, the legislature? That's not what women do. And so they found that they had to fight for their rights as women in order to be able to fight for the other causes they really cared about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the barriers that they had to confront? One of the biggest barriers was at the time the feminist movement began, there was a prevalent custom in America that women did not give speeches to what they called promiscuous company. Mm-hmm. And promiscuous company simply meant a group of men and women together. So they call it that. It sounds so sexy that no nice Victorian lady is going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So they didn't want... Men, of course, were welcome to speak out to anyone, and they could teach men, they could teach women, they could teach them both together, they could teach them separately. Men were welcome to talk to everyone, but women were expected to only talk to other women and only give speeches to other women and only share their political opinions with other women. And when they tried to speak to men as well, which, of course, was very necessary because the Mm -hmm. men were the decision makers. Mm they found that they were blocked at every turn by this belief that women, that was improper for women to do. Mm -hmm. And how did women of color contribute to the American suffragette movement? Actually, the very first woman to break that taboo of speaking out in front of men was a black woman. Her name was Maria Stewart, and she was a black indentured servant in Boston. 
And she was the very first woman to break that custom to say, I'm going to give speeches to both men and women at the same time. Mm -hmm. Out in public, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to talk to men and women about what I think. And she was the very first person to break that taboo. And shortly after that, there was another big group of women in Pennsylvania um, that was interested in abolition. And among them, there were both black and white women. One of the most famous white women among them was Lucretia Mott, that we hear of a lot. But the women of the Fort and Purvis families were also very big organizers of that movement. And they started one of the very first abolition societies for women in which which got women involved in politics in ways they had never been involved before. Mm -hmm. And the women of color, were they from the South? Most of these women were from the North. Unfortunately, slavery was still in place at the time, and it was pretty dangerous to be mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. an outspoken woman in the South at this time of, oh. of, the, of, the, oh. of the century. Yeah, mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. was pre-Civil War. And there were a lot of immigrants. Were they useful in this movement? Absolutely. Um, they brought in new ideas from other countries where the civil rights movement was already going on in different ways and brought in new insights that American women who had been born and raised here hadn't thought of before. One of those women was Ernestine Rose, who was a Jewish woman from Poland who came over and on her way to the United States, she first stopped in England where she became very involved in a group called the Owenites. Mm -hmm. And they had some exciting new ideas where they, instead of punishing individuals for whatever crimes they had committed, they thought we should look at the community and see what, what causes of these social problems. It's a way that now we often think of social problems and about ways to prevent crime from happening. But back then it was a brand new idea that people weren't really thinking about in America. Mm -hmm. And when Ernestine Rose came to America, she brought those ideas with her. Another person was Marie Sarczewska, who is German, and she got her midwifery degree in Germany. And she went through a lot of work to get it, went through a lot of hoops. Just like in America, they did not like the idea of women becoming doctors. There were a lot of barriers for her to overcome, but she did. And when she came over to America, she brought those medical schools with her. And eventually, here in the United States, she went on to train many women to become medical doctors mm -hmm. at a time when that was brand new for women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, April, that right now Germany has a woman as head of the country. England has a woman as a head of the country. I don't know about some of the other countries. I know France doesn't. Do you think that the Europeans are further ahead as far as equality than we are in the United States? In some ways, they certainly are. Here in America, we have never had a woman as president, which isn't true in many other countries where women have been leading the countries for many years. Mm -hmm. And so that's one way in which we still have work to do. And so... I think it's great that we are still involving women who have immigrated from other countries. And now, with our new modern technology, we can talk to women who are working in their own countries from where we are. We're no longer so silent as we used to be, and we can get those good ideas and bring them to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what about men? Were there men that contributed in the history of the suffragette movement? Absolutely. In fact, at the beginning, there were actually more men than women that were really interested in women's rights. Mm -hmm. And part of that was because these men were involved in these other movements, in abolition particularly, and they realized that they needed the help of women to achieve their goals, that they couldn't abolish slavery by themselves. Mm -hmm. They needed to involve these passionate and very smart women in their cause. And so... Certain men who were abolitionists, such as William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass and Samuel May, actually became very involved in the women's rights movement because they needed the help of women to abolish slavery, and they realized that. Mm -hmm. And were they all Northerners? Um, for the most part, because the abolition movement was largely confined to the North. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And April, how was activism during the 19th century, different from modern activism, and how was it similar? 
Well, one thing that's obviously different is now that we have the internet, we have phones, we have ways of communicating with each other, communicating is much easier. But it's not as different as one would think, because back then they were also communicating with each other. They worked really hard to meet with each other, to have conventions with each other, and send letters to each other. They sent many, many letters back and forth. They were constantly corresponding with different people, even people they hadn't met yet. They would send letters to some activists that they'd read about in a paper to get their ideas and start talking to them, and they'd become basically pen pals. And so they communicated a lot that way. One thing that's very different now is that feminism is more popular now. Mm-hmm. At the time that I was writing about, it was a brand new idea, and there wasn't a lot of support for it. And so it was kind of dangerous at the time to be a feminist. There were some women that had very violent acts happen against them. I mentioned the Philadelphia Women's Anti-Slavery Society. When that group met in a brand new building called Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Hall, people were so angry that women were in there giving speeches to a mixed-gender audience that they gathered a huge mob outside the building, forced them out of the building, and then burned the building down. Mm-hmm. So it was a much more dangerous, violent time then. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not to say that today lots of people are very brave and are encountering very dangerous situations as they stand up for what they believe in. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that the country is more divided and almost more violent now than it has been most of my lifetime, and then I'll be 87 in a couple months. I've never seen it. It is concerning, yes. One of the people that I talk about in the book, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who actually is the person who's on the cover of the book, Mm -hmm. she was a black woman who was very involved in activism around the time of the Civil War. And after the Civil War, she talked about her concern about how because of the inequity in the country, it had allowed people to to come into power that were just mean and bad, basically. She was talking about mostly about Andrew Johnson, who was the president at the time, mm-hmm. who she felt became president because the country was basically harming black people, harming poor people. And she said it was poor white men who elected that man, man into office because people had been neglecting their education and neglecting teaching them about the need for civil rights. Mm-hmm. And the things that she said sound very familiar to what a lot of people have said about the election of President Trump more recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did women have the right to vote then? They didn't, did they? No. Most of the women in my book did not see women ever achieve the right to vote during their lifetime, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So these women started working for that right 100 years before the 19th Amendment was passed. And as we know, even after the 19th Amendment was passed, there were still many barriers preventing black women and Native American women from voting for many decades after that. Mm-hmm. As far as your book wrote this so that there were things that we could learn that could be useful now in terms of activism. So can you tell us how we can make our voices heard today as far as getting equal rights for everyone? Yeah, some of the things that those suffragists did that we could replicate today is they banded together. When women found that men would not listen to them, they banded banded together as women and formed a women's group where they could make their voices heard as a group, which sometimes was easier to do than speaking out one at a time. Then they could support each other and they could send in petitions with many, many signatures on. And so they worked together and that really helped. Another thing that they did was they looked for allies. They found those men like William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass who sympathized with their needs and they worked to gain their support and to use them to help educate other men about the need for women's rights. Mm -hmm. And so that's another thing that we can do is form those alliances and find those people who are sympathetic to our cause and ask them to help to make our voices heard. Have you identified people that are helpful at this point and those who are not? Well, we're always or identifying groups. I, I don't want individuals, but groups. Um, well, yeah, I guess individuals, too, if you can identify some that are helpful. 
there's there's always different opportunities. Sometimes you're surprised by who can be your ally. Like maybe they'll disagree with you in the vast majority of cases, mm-hmm. but maybe there's one particular law that you support and maybe for a completely different reason they support it too, and that's an opportunity to form an unexpected alliance. Mm-hmm. And you need to take advantage of those opportunities. Mm-hmm. What about social media? You mentioned this earlier that we have social media now that you can communicate with people. Is that used much for activism? Oh, yes. Yes, activists are talking to each other on social media all the time. Um, One of the ways that many of the activists I work with talk to each other is in Facebook groups because Mm -hmm. these are groups that people can join from many different countries from all over this nation. And talk to people, they may not know anyone in their neighborhood who cares about the cause the way they do, but mm-hmm. suddenly they join a Facebook group and they know thousands of other people that they can communicate with. Um, there's also, Twitter is a wonderful tool for talking about politics with lots of people. You can use a hashtag and all of a sudden find many other people that are interested in your cause. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you're also likely to find lots of vitriol and mm-hmm. lots of people who are pretty nasty. One of the difficulties about social media is that people can be anonymous, especially on a platform like Twitter where they're not required to enter any sort of a name. Mm-hmm. They can just come up with some sort of a tagline, tagline name. Mm-hmm. And and people will be quite vitriolic, so you have to develop kind of a tough skin and be able to just ignore some of that noise. Mm-hmm. Is there a role for men in a feminist movement? I believe so. I think, looking at the history, the feminist movement would not have come as far as it had if it hadn't have been for the support of men. Especially when one considers that a lot of the time, what women's rights activists are working for are the same rights and opportunities that men are already enjoying. So they're looking for women to be in those positions of power that men are already there. Well, the men who are already there, they're in a position of power, a position of privilege. And if they agree with you and if they're willing to listen to you, they can help. Mm-hmm. So it's wonderful when you can find those men who understand the cause or who can be educated about the cause who will help you. Mm-hmm. I keep mentioning William Lloyd Garrison as a great women's rights advocate, but I should mention that when he was very young, at the very earliest time of his career, he was not a women's rights advocate. In fact, the first time he saw women a, a political petition which women had signed, he was shocked and horrified. He couldn't believe that women were getting involved in this way. Mm-hmm. And as he came to know people like Lucretia Mott and Maria Stewart, he developed a respect for women that completely changed his outlook, and he became a very fervent women's rights supporter from then on. Mm-hmm. Were there any nurses involved in these movements? Medical nurses? Yeah, right. Yeah, nurses. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Florence Nightingale was involved in the movement. Also, my book talks a lot about people like Marie Zajewska and Elizabeth Blackwell who were, and Harriet Hunt, who were among the first women involved in the medical profession, mm-hmm. who became involved in the movement and worked really hard to include women in the healthcare profession. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great, good. As a nurse, I always like to know if nurses were involved, because I know that nurses oh, yes. had a very active role in the Second World War um, from the movies and things that I've seen, and also historically that uh, nurses were very active in that war. So That's right. Yeah, education and nursing are two of the professions where women first really got a very good stronghold in. And that's one of the ways that they met lots of other women and became highly educated and developed the skills that they needed to be good activists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is it possible then to balance family life with activism? I'll admit that it's hard. You know, Susan B. Anthony, she never did marry or have children, and she thought it was not possible. Mm -hmm. She was pretty annoyed every time one of her friends in the activist movement would get married. Mm So some would argue no. However, there are many examples of women who did successfully pull it off. And one person who 
really thought about this a lot with Lucy Stone. Lucy Stone was in her mid-30s at the time she got married. And until then, she had stayed single much later than most women of her time because she did not believe it was possible, and she felt like her activism was more important than having mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. And so it was important to her that she stay active in the in the movement, and she saw that as precluding her from having a family, which is odd when you think about it, because nobody ever asked if a man can be an activist mm-hmm. or have mm-hmm. a profession and have a family. We all assume that they can. Mm-hmm. Um, this question seems to only come up for women. And... I think part of that is because men don't shoulder as much responsibility in family life as they should. If, right. if they were also thinking about balancing family life with their professions and their causes, I think that we'd all be better off. Mm-hmm. You really need everyone to be balancing those things and thinking about that, not just women. Mm-hmm. But she met um, Elizabeth Blackwell, one of the first American female doctors. She met her brother, Henry Blackwell. And he wanted, well, he wanted to marry her. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And he also wanted to join her as an activist. And he had a big plan that they were going to work together. And that's exactly what happened. They they both became very, very involved in the women's movement. I mean, she was already involved, but he joined her in that movement. And when he married her, they were able to keep working on the movement together because her husband was fully supportive. And he cared about women's rights also. And he also became very involved in the women's rights movement. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes people think that you can't handle both of these, but I've seen many women in academia, and I wonder how they can handle their families, because I know that with me, it was a full-time job. You know, even though you have small teaching loads, by the time you publish, you do your research, you prepare for class, you do tests and grading and all of the things that you do in academia, I wonder how women had time to raise children, but they did. The same as with war. You think, well, how do women have time to raise the family when they also are assuming responsibility for war duty? But again, they did. So I think that we often undervalue or don't give women credit for as much as they can do that they are doing, if I'm making sense. Then yeah, yeah. Is religion compatible with the feminist movement? Again, you'll get different answers from different people. I'll tell you right now that I happen to be a feminist of faith, and so I have my perspective on that. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely would say yes, of course, because women who are... Um, who are in patriarchal religions, we're right there in the trenches. Mm-hmm. We're there where feminism is needed. We're fighting for women's rights. We're trying to promote the status of women in ways that other people who aren't involved in patriarchal religions don't have to. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's a very important part of the movement. Of course, looking back historically, Ernestine Rose, I mentioned that she was Jewish, but she actually became more of an atheist. And she was, had, was pretty... Um, impatient with, with religious people and with the whole concept of religion. And she would argue with Mason about that. She would mm-hmm. say, no, religion is exactly what holds women down, and you shouldn't have it. Um, but there are also other examples. Sojourner Truth was a very religious woman, and a lot of that power and confidence that she had seemed to stem from her faith mm-hmm. that made her such a powerful speaker, made people want to listen to her. Another person was Antoinette Brown. She um, became the first American woman, Protestant woman, to be ordained. And she worked really hard for that to overcome those barriers to the ordination of women. And I would argue that the hard work she did benefited everyone, not just religious people, because she made some big changes in our country in the way people thought of women that affect everyone. Mm-hmm. And those people who do not think they're compatible, what is their rationale for that? Um, well, if you ask Ernestine Rose, she would say it's because uh, she would say that the Bible is a bad document for women. That I, I mentioned that there was that taboo at the time against women speaking. A lot of that came from words in the Bible about let your women keep silence in the churches. Mm-hmm. And so she didn't have any patience for that kind of scripture that 
that really pulled women down and that people used an ex- as an excuse to silence women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're important arguments, but I would say that's why we need people like Antoinette Brown, who actually investigated those scriptures and tried to find a way to make people of faith more welcoming towards women and to make them listen to women. Mm-hmm. Of course, those same people will use those same arguments against the African-American population, against the gay population, against anyone that doesn't agree with what they say. And and I have difficulty when these same people who are so prejudiced say that they're Christians. Because to me, it's inconsistent. You know, you to me, Jesus taught love and not hate. And you can't hate groups of people and still profess to be a Christian. That's just not consistent in in my mind. But, you know, I don't see, personally, I don't see anything inconsistent. I think that there are, because I believe in the Gnostic Bibles, the Gnostic uh, chapters, I believe that the whole Bible is not there, that they made decisions in the past historically, and removed sections of the Bible, and I have interviewed people on some of those sections that are no longer part of the Bible that we use in the Protestant churches, at least, and that the Bible, even though it was supposed to have been inspired by God, was still written by men, and so that I'm sure that it could not be completely objective. So I guess I find yeah. I find ways to excuse parts of the Bible to fit. And I guess maybe I'm doing the same thing that the people that say they are Christians that hate do. But I just I think it's a big stretch between hating and what Jesus taught. I don't see it as incompatible either, but I was just interested, you know, in, in what people think. And yeah, there are a lot of activism then involves change. And how does art inspire this change? One of the things, well, one of the people we talked about a lot in the book is Frances Owen Watkins Harper, who was a poet. and she would use poetry almost the same way that modern slam poets do, where she would go out in public and perform her poetry. And it would cause people to come and listen who wouldn't otherwise. Mm-hmm. Like I said, this was a time when nobody wanted to listen, well, nobody wanted men to listen to women, first of all. And then on top of that, she was a black woman, which made it even harder for her to get people willing to listen to her. But because she was performing this art and doing it so well, the audiences would come and they would listen and then they would hear the messages as they were listening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's another way to get your message heard. Mm-hmm. Does music do the same thing? Another, yes, absolutely. I think any kind of art does that. Mm-hmm. Another person in my book is Julia Ward Howe. Um, most people know her as the person who wrote the lyrics for the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was also a suffragist, but not to begin with. Um, and it took her a while to come around to those progressive views. And once she had them, she was a fervent supporter of women's rights and very effective. But I think in her case, her art is what changed her. Because as she was exploring new ideas, things that she hadn't been brought up with in her traditional upbringing, she would write fiction, she would write music, she would write poems, and just kind of explore these ideas in that fictional medium where she didn't have to commit to having them yet. She could just explore the ideas without saying, this is what I think, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as she did that, her opinions evolved, and she was able to change herself until she became the powerful advocate for civil rights that she eventually became. Mm-hmm. Great, good. And with so many things involved, how do activists determine their priorities? 
it, it's tough sometimes. One example that I have in the book is the bloomers movement, or what they would have called dress reform, because they did not like the word bloomers. That wasn't their word. That was something that people who were making fun of them called them. They called them bloomers. Mm-hmm. So basically, that's the idea that women should be allowed to wear pants. Mm-hmm. And today, it's a pretty accepted standard. Yep, <laughs> women can wear pants. But back then, it was a big deal. And they were absolutely right about it. Of course, women should be allowed to wear pants. And the dresses and corsets and petticoats they were wearing were causing big problems. I mean, these things were dangerous. They could bump into the hearth and they'd catch on fire. There were people, women who died because of the fashions they were wearing. Mm-hmm. So there was, they were absolutely right. They were completely right. But sometimes our priorities aren't about whether we are right or not. And what they found was that the street harassment they had when they were wearing bloomers would make it impossible for them to talk on any other subject. So they would be trying to advocate for something important like women's right to vote. And they couldn't get a word in edgewise because these big crowds of men would come in to make fun of their bloomers Mm -hmm. and would just stop them. And in the end, they decided this isn't worth it. Another thing is it was grating on them personally because after going, they were used to having people heckling, you know, when they have a big convention, but then they could leave the convention, walk out of the room and go home and relax, right? Mm-hmm. But if they were wearing bloomers, that wasn't the case because people would see them on the streets, they'd recognize them by their clothing as women's rights advocates and they'd follow them and harass them. And it was just personally wearing on them. And so even though they were right about, and they were completely right, I'm going to say forever, yes, they were right. They should have been allowed to wear bloomers instead of those dresses. They decided to let that battle go. It just wasn't the battle they were choosing at that time. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you have to let go of things, even if you're right, because other things are more important. Mm-hmm. Right. I saw that yesterday there were a lot of protests around the country about the abortion issue. Is that effective in bringing about change from a historical point of view? Um, well, historically, yes. Protests have been very effective means of bringing attention to issues over time, mm-hmm. is bringing large groups of people together to talk as a group instead of making it one person standing alone has proven to be quite effective. Mm -hmm. Of course, we're revisiting an issue that I thought was resolved many, many, many years ago with Roe versus Wade, and yet it's coming to the forefront again. And so... Yeah, history tends to be cyclical. Like We think that, of course, things are just going to move forward, but really... They kind of move in all directions. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the women's right to vote will ever become an issue again, but who knows? Well, one would hope not, but then there have been several struggles in recent years over voting rights, with some legislatures bringing in new barriers that are stopping people from voting, much in the way that even when voting rights became part of the Constitution, people were blocking women women and people of color and minorities from voting based on other things like poll taxes and reading tests. And while the mechanisms that people are using now that bar people from voting are different, um, a lot of times they're around um, voter ID rules or things like that, there are still people who are trying to limit the number of people voting. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's an issue we always have to be aware of and careful about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that it may be partly because one of the two groups have identified which ones vote for the opposition, and they're trying to make sure that they win. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, people want to stop people from voting who might not vote for them. Right. That was actually a big problem during the women's movement, mm-hmm. is that... Women wanted the right to vote, and at that time, um, Republicans were the more progressive party, kind of, and Democrats were more traditional. So it's kind of the opposite of what we have today. Mm-hmm. Their their platforms changed over the years, mm-hmm. but at that time, it was the Republicans that were the more progressive party, oh. and they had been supporters of 
women's rights for quite some time. Mm-hmm. But they started to realize after the Civil War that if they enfranchised women, a lot of Southern women would become voters. And they were concerned that those Southern women would be Democrats and would not vote in their favor. <laughs> so suddenly they felt not so not so strongly about women's voting rights as they had in the past. So that's always been an issue. Things like that come up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there things that the modern group should avoid based upon the historical perspective and also things that they would benefit from using from a historical perspective? Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems that we see in looking at the women's movement of the past and sometimes today is the racism. Racism was a big problem. And I think part of the reason for that is because it got to the point where it seems that black men and white women were competing for the right to vote. And each seemed to think that if they let the other get the right to vote, that group might block them from getting the right to vote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it became a case of where two groups of people, both of which were disadvantaged in this country compared to white men who already had those rights, were competing against each other for rights instead of working with each other. So that's something I think you always need to look out for is that when you're trying to seek your rights, you should never be at the expense of some other group. Mm -hmm. And I think that something that we can emulate from them is how much they they supported each other, how much they worked together, they looked to find people. They didn't always agree with each other, but there were so few suffragists in the beginning. I mean, like I said, my book is before the Civil War, so it's still Mm -hmm. many, many decades before the 19th Amendment when there were so many people who supported the right of women to vote. Mm -hmm. It was a small group, and even though they didn't all agree with each other in everything, they were talking to each other, they were working together, and they were trying to build those bridges. And I think that was really necessary for their movement to grow until it eventually had some success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. April, do you think we will ever reach the point where mankind will have reached the spiritual level that they want what is best for everyone and there won't be the greed and all the uh, money and the power and the negativity but will be concerned for one's fellow man and caring for each other and wanting equality for everyone? I hope so. As an activist, I'm an optimist. Activists usually are. Mm-hmm. Those of us who work so hard for change, we do it because there's a part of us that believes it's possible. Mm-hmm. And and so I am an optimist, and I certainly hope so. But having studied history, I... I've seen that history is cyclical, that instead of moving steadily forward, you see us kind of backtracking and then getting a little further and backtracking and then getting a little further. But I think eventually, um, like Martin Luther King would say, that the arc moves towards justice. And do you think the current situation will eventually resolve? I mean, right now there are so many problems, not only the inequality as far as pay, as far as rights for women, for different racial groups and all, but also the climate, you know, the inconsideration of the climate and, again, the power and the money and the greed and all are getting in the way of what is best for the people of the United States. And I'm very concerned about the climate in all of this because there are differences. We have not had the kind of weather in the past that we're having now, at least not in my lifetime. And so how optimistic are you about all of this? Because I don't see that we can continue going on as we're going. It is. It is concerning and frustrating, but I also see lots of good people that are working toward change. Lots of people who have enough optimism that they become activists Mm -hmm. and that they're working to build their communities and improve them. And that's always a good sign. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. 
I think we need reassurance periodically that things are moving in a jagged but overall positive direction. Right. So, April, then, is there anything you'd like to say before we look at your a book and how the listeners can reach it and any services that you have? Um, I would just encourage people to check out AskTheSuffragist.com. Um, every week we're putting up new quotes by suffragists, things that are still relevant today, things that can inspire us. And I think it's important that as people who care about feminism and therefore care about women, that we remember those women who came before us who worked so hard to get where we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. And then, April, will you tell us about your book and if you have services? And also, you I think you have a special offer for people that buy your book by June 30th. That's right. Yes. So my book is called Ask a Suffragist, Stories and Wisdom from America's First Feminist. And it's about that very first generation of American suffragists, or basically the beginnings of the American feminist movement, um, starting way back in the 1830s to about the time of the Civil War. So these are people who cared about women's rights back when very few other people did, back when it was a very unpopular opinion to have. And I think their stories are very inspiring. They were flawed people. They also made some mistakes as you'll see as you read the book. But I think it's good to know about those mistakes and successes so that we don't recreate those same problems, that we don't have to work from the scratch either to come up with new solutions to things that have already been resolved by our foremothers. So I'd encourage everyone to read that. And everyone who does buy that book by June 30th, um, this June is an exciting time because it's the 100th anniversary of the time Congress approved the 19th Amendment and sent it to the state for ratification. So this was a very big step in the women's rights movement. And so obviously it wasn't the only step. There was still quite a way to go before especially black women and Native American women fully had their rights. But it was an important step in the right direction. And we're celebrating that in the month of June. So everyone who buys my book during the month of June or the month of May, it's on pre-order now. Um, if you buy it now and send an email to April at um, AprilYoungB.com with the words Illustrated Companion in the subject line, I'll send you a free e-copy e- of an Illustrated Companion to go with the book. So that has pictures of the people and the events and the places that are in the book. You can see what they look like. It also has discussion groups, discussion questions that you can bring up in your book club or with your activist group. So you guys can talk about our four mothers and our forefathers together and build ideas to improve our future. Is this on your website? This, um, this yes. offer? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Good. And give us your website. Askasuffragist.com. Good. Good. And do you speak to groups and things like that, or do you have uh, services, or you don't have products, do you? Um, I don't have products to sell, no. Mm-hmm. However, if people want me for speaking engagements, you can do the same thing. Email April at AprilYoungB.com and talk to me about your speaking engagements. Great. Good. Well, thank you very much, April. I appreciate this, and I think it's so timely right now that we need to stop moving backwards and get on a forward track again. And I think this is very timely information to help do that. So I appreciate this very much, and I wish you much success with your book. In the time left today, I would like to tell you about my latest book on preventing cancer, which is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and other bookstores as well as on my cancer website, Holistic Cancer Foundation. The book titled Reducing Your Cancer Risk, A Holistic Approach, uses a public health model for the framework. In general, the framework postulates that there are multiple factors that lead to health or disease processes in our lives, and these include host factors, environmental factors, and agent disability factors. In order for disease to occur, there must be a strong disease or disabling agent, a weak host, 
and a favorable environment that brings them together. It is possible to intervene at various points in this process to prevent disease or move us toward a healthy phase. We focus on the period before the disease agent interacts with the host, and our interventions are directed towards strengthening the host, reducing the virulence of the agent, and making the environment less favorable for future interactions. Things one can do to reduce the impact of the environment and agent include working with electromagnetic frequency waves, ultraviolet waves, carcinogenic chemicals, and carcinogenic metals in the environment. Research on how these affect humans and ways to eliminate or reduce their effect are presented. For example, bisphenol A or BPA is an endocrine disruptor and may cause cancer of the breast and prostate. It is found in plastic water bottles, canned food lining, eating and cooking utensils, among other sources. During the summer months, when water bottles are transported in unrefrigerated trucks, the heat causes the BPA to leach into the water that you later drink. There are also things you can do to become more resistant. These include physical interventions, proper nutrition and fluids, physical activities, vitamins, minerals, herbs, and supplements, immune builders, smoking cessation, and use of sound or music. For example, research shows that eating proper nutrition reduces your cancer risk by 35%, and exercising 30 minutes a day for five days a week reduces it by 50%. Research also shows a strong body-mind-spirit interaction and the effects of mental-spiritual factors on disease. Thus, one should pay attention to forgiveness, faith, prayer, optimism, being positive, helping others, affirmations, and other activities. Research on the effect of physical, mental, spiritual behaviors and health illness are discussed in the book and what you can do with these behaviors to make the body more resistant. For example, about 50% of cancer patients have a forgiveness problem, and failing to deal with this leads to chronic anxiety and a depletion of killer cells that protect against disease. Ways to deal with forgiveness problems are presented. In addition, Links to interviews with over 75 experts on the topics discussed in the book are included. I thank you for joining me this week, and I hope some of the information was useful. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, your host.